Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Pete Wissinger. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we're going to be talking about recent plays with special guest Pete Wissinger. And we've had a couple of recent episodes where we've got a little bit deep, a little academic. So I thought, let's mix it up and bring in my good buddy Pete. You've heard his name mentioned on this podcast before, mainly as the Sherpa who's helping to take me up trick-taking mountain, or should I say ladder climb up there, eh? Eh? But anyway, Pete, welcome to the show. That's some inside baseball talk right there. Thank you so much for coming on. Fan of the show, excited to be here, love what you guys do, so thanks for having me. And then, Pete, maybe just as we kick things off, right, so we can just sort of get the listeners on board, would you give us like a two-minute... What's what's the deal? Like, why do you love trick taking games so much? Yeah, sure. It's, it's funny that like I am known because I go to a couple different game nights, and I'm now known as the guy who will always have at least one small box of cards with me. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's like one of those like things that was a core part of growing up that I really didn't think about honestly as like a game mechanism until I was pretty deep into the modern hobby. Like I grew up playing spades and euchre in high school a lot. Mm, Cool. And then I wish we were friends in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was pretty cool in high school. Uh, (laughs) My high school actually had an intramural euchre tournament. It was so big at my high school. That's so cool. That's that's like peak Midwesterner. I know. But then it wasn't until um, actually I played Brian Baru that Mm. I was like, oh, trick taking is like a thing that could like be explored. And then that sent me down a rabbit hole. And like, I think that what those games capture for me about a game night is just there's something to sitting around a table with friends playing cards that highlights the game night as like a social gathering as much because I tend to play like heavier board games that you know we have to give all our attention to what's going on at the table like you know there's not really a ton of small talk and whatnot but just like sitting around a table with friends playing cards there's these like built-in breaks where you're like shuffling and dealing where it, it it is takes me back to this sort of more sort of like social experience and uh, I think you get to kind of see the personalities of the people around the table more than you do in a lot of sort of the hobby games. Totally. Yeah, well put. Also, if anyone wants to look, uh, Pete currently has, or at some point made a top 25 trick-taking slash climbing slash shedding games on BGG that will link in the show notes. It's a really well, cool list that will give you even more context for uh, the types of games Pete is talking about if you're sort of like, wait, I don't even know what trick-taking games are. Uh, you should look at this list and explore some of these games, and you will learn. And I'm going to talk about one of those games today. So, oh nice. wow, what a great segue! <laughs> today, we're not talking about trick-taking games exclusively, but recent plays. And the way we're structuring this is that each of us have three games that we want to talk about. We're going to go one at a time, and we'll and we'll discuss those three games, and we'll see if we have time at the last at the left at the end to maybe get into some extras. But Brendan, you're up first. So what's the first game that you've been playing recently that you want to share on this podcast? Yeah, so the first game I've been playing recently that I want to share on this podcast, Jake, is Next Station London. This is a roll and write game that won the Spiel de Yars. And it was released in 2022. 
And it is essentially, if anyone's familiar with the old mobile app game, Mini Metro, this is almost like the board game implementation of that game. So it's a game about making routes all over this map of London that shows uh, the Thames, the River Thames running through it. Uh, And then all over that map are little symbols. Uh, I guess they're actually shapes of different types. So there's triangles, circles, squares, and pentagons. And there, the input randomness for this game is you flip a, de- uh, a card from the top of a deck uh, that will show you a shape and you have to connect the line you're currently working on, more on that in a second, to uh, one of those shapes in a straight line. So you can go from anywhere on your line where you would continue drawing that line directly. So you can't make bran- branching paths except for some special powers that could come up. Uh, and you're trying to accomplish these global goals around potentially making it to as many districts as possible within London. There's sort of 13 districts that are there crossing the river a bunch of times. Uh, Every time you cross the river, you get a certain number of points. And then also, whenever you bring different lines of your railway together, you get points for that. So if there's ever a station, these little symbols, the shapes represent stations that connects two trains, you get a certain number of points, three trains, a certain number, and four the most. So you're trying to accomplish all of these sort of juxtaposed and overlaid goals all at once. And there's also four different colored pencils in the game that you'll use to draw these rail lines on your map. So Jake and Pete, if I'm if we're playing a game, one of us might use the green pen pencil for their first uh, round. Someone might I might use the blue, someone else might use the red, and then there's going to be a purple pencil that no one uses. We'll play four rounds of the game, each drawing a line of each of those colors. So we share inputs but we don't necessarily share inputs for the same color. So we all kind of play the same game and we share the same inputs, but what those inputs mean for our board are going to be different, which is kind of a little novel twist on the roll and write game. I think you naturally get to that point pretty quickly in a game like Welcome To, where you start fully symmetric and then quickly have made decisions that make your experience not symmetrical at all. Uh, But within something like Next Station London, completely shared inputs, but you actually start with mild asymmetry, um, which is kind of cool. I really like this game. I think it's a novel roll and write that offers an interesting spatial puzzle that can be a little bit mathy. There's an element in this game that's just like hyper tactical. And the way the input works is there's a deck of cards and whenever a certain there's blue cards and red cards, whenever a certain number of the red cards in the deck get revealed, the round ends. So there's this variable random ending. So you kind of can read what stations might still be there and plan for that fairly well, not perfectly. But so it becomes puzzly towards the end of a round where you might say like, oh, I think I can make this sort of line work. I'm going to try to execute that plan. And you get this nice arc in each of those four different lines that you build of, okay, what's my plan going to look like in the in the early turns of flipping over cards? Um, okay, this is kind of the plan that's roughly been presented to me. How do I make the most of it with with what might still come out? And then there's like nice add-ons like pencil powers that give you little alternate things you can do and it's just it's punchy and fun what do you do what questions do y'all have i like this game a lot i think it's worth playing it's on board game arena i recommend it yeah you sound really excited about it which is it's kind of surprising because it i'm hearing you talk about this and i take your word for it that it's good uh, but you've you asked me if i'm interested in covering on this show it just sounds like what what's the one we played get on board oh yeah you yeah. know and it just sounds a lot like a lot of the other roll and write games that exist and we've played (laughs) and i yeah so i think like 
I take your word that it's good, but it's for me, it's kind of like missing the thing that makes me want to go out of my way to play it. Pete, have you played this one? So I've played Next Station Tokyo cool. once, which is the sequel game. And so I've never played Next Station London. From what I understand, it's very similar. And I played it once and I played it in person. And I will say that the tactile nature of literally passing around different colored pencils yeah. was my favorite part. I'm not really that big of a roll and write guy. However, my embarrassing story is I played it once. And then when it came time to score it, I was like, guys, I crushed it. And I showed her my map. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to cross over lines of the same oh. color. And I had like <laughs> nice. cheated all over the place. And they were like, you can't do that. And so I'm not sure if I'm good at it or not. That's awesome. But <laughs> is, that's a little bit telling of the experience of the game. Check my right? loop. I don't want to like hold Pete not knowing the rules against the game, but that you could get to the end of an entire game and nobody's realized that you've been cheating since the very beginning. That's one of the real flaws of rolling rights, right? There's right, no. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. If I hadn't shown I... them my sheet, I probably w- went, would have won the game and they would have nice. never known I cheated. <laughs> right. <laughs> How'd you do that? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a shared role and rank experience that multiple people have probably had. I will, Jake, I know I want to move on to my next game, but I will say if I'm going to stand up for Next Station London slightly and why you should play it, the best role and rates are about pacing and flow of decisions, right? They let you get in that sort of meditative flow state in terms of there's a plan developing and then I'm executing it. And the four round structure of the four different lines you draw gives you this really nice rising arc and falling tension that gives you breaks and it, it's just the pacing of this game is very good. I think that's the, the real win. And the map's cool. Like mathematically, I think as a design, like designer minded person, I sort of look at it. I'm like, oh, this is novel and interesting and works well. I want to engage with it and learn more about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I will give it a try on board game arena for you. Brendan, why don't you share your next game with us? Okay. So my next game is a 2023 release from a Korean publisher. That's an asymmetric card game called Dracula versus Van Helsing. Uh, it's a two-player only game, and Pete, we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna dance around a question that I'm gonna pose in a minute, in which you each basically each player there's a there's a deck of cards in four suits that are values one through eight. Each of those values has a power associated with them, uh, such as reveal a card or discard a card or uh, change the Trump suit or end the round immediately or reveal one of your own cards, which is a cost because. Essentially, in front of you, you have this uh, card holder in which you're slotting cards in to certain uh, sort of slots within that card holder. So there's five slots that you can have, and you can really think of those as lanes. So your card in slot five is going up against your opponent's card in slot five. And if you win that lane, you're going to make progress towards winning the game, whether you're playing as Dracula or Van Helsing. And there's a small twist there. It's not really even that impactful. There's like a little map and Dracula wants to win certain rows, certain lanes more. And Van Helsing just wants to win a lot of lanes and do a lot of damage to Dracula to beat him wherever that is. So for example, if in lane three, uh, I have a Trump, whatever is the Trump suit at that time in an eight, I know I'm winning there. Uh, and then beyond that, there's some fuzziness. But this game has this interesting structure for how you value where the Trump suit comes first. So if you have a Trump, that wins. Then you look at the value. But if you're tied in value, then you look at the rank of the other cards. So it's, it's kind of confusing, but it works really well. And it makes for interesting decisions where, oh, this is the lowest rank color, but it's a six. Is that good enough? Can I beat uh, what the other player has, assuming it's maybe not a Trump? Or this is a, a one value Trump suit card, is that is that good enough? Can I win here? 
And then there's tension around when you end a round as you kind of build up this hand of cards because once you call to end the round, your opponent gets one more turn. Uh, and the way turns work is you draw a card and you either decide to place that card and discard one of the other cards that you already have in a, in a slot and then do the power of the card you discarded or you discard the card you drew and then do the power with that. And the lower the value of card, the weaker the power it is and the higher value, the stronger it is. So things like getting to change the trump suit, you're going to have to discard a, a beefy seven value card or something like that that you really would like in your board, but then you can completely alter the whole the whole shape of the game where what cards you even want to have in your rows is flipped on its head. So if you get a bad draw, you can discard a card and pl actually make it an amazing draw potentially. So this is another game that I actually quite like, but it, I think it's it's fun and it's tense and it provides interesting trade-off decisions uh that's not there's no easy way to actually value anything you get a little bit more information as the round goes on but you're often speculating and making guesses based on what cards you've seen and what your opponent might have and i think it gets me a little bit in that donkey space headspace not quite because the closest you get to a si simultaneous choice is just the reveal at each of the end of the rounds but it's it's a fun little tactical card game that fits along with games like Jekyll and Hyde or the Fox in the Forest for me. And I think is trick-taking adjacent because it has a trump suit, but it doesn't feel like a trick-taking game because you're not just playing cards every round. So the question I'm dancing around is, Pete, do you think this is a trick-taking game? So I've played this and yeah. what's funny is that I think I had heard it was a trick-taking game before I played it. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, cool, a new two-player trick-taking game from the same publisher who made Jekyll versus Hyde. Yeah. And then I played it. And I think that it seems like a game that maybe started out as a trick-taking yeah. game and then developed away from it. Because it's almost yeah. like a trick-taking game mixed with like action programming. Mm -hmm. Because like it's like a trick-taking game where you have to play your hand from left to right, yeah. basically. Yeah. And but ultimately I think it's a lane battler is what yeah. I would call it. Right. Yeah. Like it's got like bluffing and you're like playing a game of chicken with your opponent. Yeah. But I think that calling it trick taking inspired helps somebody learn the game because now they understand why one card beats another card is I think it's, the, yeah. It's so cool. It's a game that uses the language of trick taking games to teach it to you, to make it more accessible without being exactly like all the other trick taking games, which is cool. I think Trump suit is something that I've basically only heard in, in trick, -taking trick taking games. Yeah. And I also like the fact that we're at the point in the trick taking renaissance where we can start asking the question like, wait, is every game a trick taking game? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I do think that people who like trick taking games would probably like it. Yeah. And it is just like, I really like two player dueling games. And so I think it works really well in that department. But if you were to put a gun to my head and say, is this game a trick taking game? I would say no. We would never do that to you, Pete. <laughs> never. Uh, <laughs> I will say, oh, sorry, Jake. I was going to ask, okay, my question, I have two questions. Yeah. First is, is do you like this more or less than Jekyll versus Hyde for those of you who have played that? Because, I mean, it feels like a obvious comparison. Same publisher, same naming convention. And asymmetric. Right. Jekyll versus Hyde is more asymmetric than this game. Uh, I will say this is lightly asymmetric. I like Jekyll versus Hyde more. How about you, Pete? Agreed. Full stop. Yeah. Jekyll versus Hyde is better. Yeah, this is a cool game, though. I, I like this game. I'm glad I've played it. I a week ago thought I went out to try to buy it, and I found that it is a little difficult to get 
in North America right now. I think it, maybe is it just hasn't come yet. 25th century is it's actually 25th century either is now or just finished doing like a, an import Kickstarter of okay. a bunch of games that they're localizing. And cool. that's one of them. And so is Jekyll and Hyde versus Scotland Yard, yeah. which is the co-op Jekyll versus Sequel. Hyde. Yeah. Yes. And so 25th century is, is going to be this year bringing it to the U.S. Cool. Okay. I was going to ask y'all if you wanted to just like take a random guess at what the next versus game will be. But now I have a better question, which will be what would be the next sequel to Jekyll versus Hyde? Jekyll versus Scotland Yard versus the It's got to be Godzilla, right? Godzilla. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Heck> yeah. <laughs> okay, wait. I will say one thing, Pete, in, in response to what you just said. I think you're exactly right. The interesting thing about this game is that essentially it's still a trick-taking game, right? In a way, because you're just you're hand-building until someone calls the end of the round. And then you, you're, trick, you're, you're playing you're playing the cards in each slot like rounds of a trick taking but it's happening all simultaneously at once so it's like a hand building trick taking game in which you're not getting well you do get information along the way now i'm lost i don't know okay yeah. it's cool yeah. it's interesting <laughs> yeah. right. for a decision space kind of like game design perspective yeah my question is like what do you think about the calling the end of the round rule Oh, because I, I've I've recently been playing sea salt and paper a lot, and that yeah. has a similar thing where at the end of the round you get to if you're the if you have whatever seven points, the amount you need to be able to trigger the end of the round, you can either say let's stop it now and everybody gets the points that they have, or you can say last chance and everybody gets another turn, and then if they beat you, it's bad for you, and if they don't beat you, it's good for you, which is it cool. honestly. It makes the whole game because it, I think without that, you have almost nothing there, but it like forces you to kind of think about like everything you've been doing up to that point all at once. Uh, mm. and, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, and it's also a, kind of a game mechanic that almost any, you know, round based game could just add. So I was curious what you guys think about it in this case. Uh, I think it's great in this game. I almost never want to call the end of the game when I'm playing this, unless I've been to use sort of like traditional card game language. If I've been card counting and I'm like, oh, I've seen all the sevens, which are the things that change the Trump suit, then I can be pretty confident. But then what the highest card in the game, the eight, if you discard it, it immediately ends the round if you're deep enough into the round. And so I'll almost always try and hold on to an eight to discard to surprise my opponent with the end of the round because it just feels so cool. And then it's cool because you're trying to wait for the right card that you drew to get to replace the eight. Um, I think, Jake, this this type of mechanism that works way better in a two-player game than a multiplayer game because you get to some weird sort of table dynamics yeah. going on. But it sounds like with Sea Salt and Paper, Bruno Cathala and the co-designer in that have kind of solved for that somewhat, which is cool. Yeah, I, I, like I've, I've mostly played Sea Salt at two for what it's worth. Yeah. Okay, I anyway. think I will say from a decision point standpoint too, the best thing for me about this game is the decision around do I discard these cards for their power or do I keep them? Like that's where the interesting decisions really lie in this game, I think. And the sort of like, honestly, the best decision is like being able to break someone's ankles by changing the Trump suit in the last round. And Dang, like dude, the crossover sudden, dribble. Yeah, 100%. Hell yeah. Your boards get completely losing board and then all of a sudden you're just, it's a bloodbath. Like, a little you, shimmy, a little yeah, shimmy. Exactly. That's right. fun. Yeah. Let's get to your next game, Brendan. Okay, so my final game that I'm going to talk about today is a game I've been playing a lot. All, all the games I'm talking about today are on Board Game Arena, and that's where I've primarily played them. And the final one is the 2013 Eric Zimmerman release, Quantum. 
quantum is well i actually i want to talk about quantum but i just want to mention really quickly because i think on decision space if we didn't we'd be remiss and eric zimmerman the designer of quantum also wrote this book in 2005 called rules of play and he and the co-author of that book katie salen really repopularized the idea of the magic circle so there's this other author johan huizinga who wrote homo ludens this book from like the early 1900s uh, that talks about all about like play and how play is essential to us as people and he really came up with the idea of magic circles and then eric zimmerman repopularized it so i just want to mention it because we use that term a lot but i think it's relevant here so eric zimmerman for a long time worked at the nyu game center and kind of on the side designed quantum so quantum uh was released in 2013 and it's this dice battling space combat game in which your you, every player has d6s that represent your ships and if, so the and it's you play it on a grid and you're trying to essentially construct a certain number of these cubes on these different planets represented on that grid uh, which you can do either by getting the right value of your own ships in orbital positions uh, uh essentially like right above or below or directly to the left orthogonal on the planets right. everybody knows what orbital orthogonal. position is you don't have yeah. to explain it it's right right yeah <laughs> especially yeah Okay, great. But so basically, if it's a 10, I would need a, a dice value six and a dice value four or two fives or whatever. You can do math. Um, yeah, we and, know about the, how to get up to 10. Totally. Thank goodness. <laughs> but the, the cool thing about this game is that the, the lowest value ships, so a one, have this amazing combat power, but they move very slowly. They can only move one space. But when you, you go into combat with another uh, player, you sort of roll dice and the lowest value wins. So a one is great. It's a battle station. And then a six is amazing at moving because it's a scout and it can zoom all around, uh, but it's not that great at combat. And every ship also has a special power associated with it. Ones get to its uh, attack next to them for free. And you can use these abilities every turn. Twos can transport other ships. They're like battle cruisers uh threes can threes are really cool they can swap locations with other dice which give you room for interesting tricks that you can do fours are flexible they can go down or up on your turn uh fives what a five like, i never want a five what does five do they, are the they fives the one that diagonal. let you transport yeah, move diagonally. twos transport oh. fives let you move yeah, diagonally yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. It. But, Which is actually zippy. And then sixes, you can re-roll for free. Basically, everything you need to know to play Quantum. It's pretty, like, did I just teach the game? There's yeah, also the special well. powers that you get, yeah, though, that yeah, totally change. There's like these asymmetric powers that make you ferocious, and then you're better at battle or whatever. Quantum is zany. It's one of the most, I'm going to say random, not, sometimes the word random gets used pejoratively. I'm not using it that way. This is a high randomness, high skill game that I quite enjoy. It's really tactical. It also has interesting strategic decisions where you can get cool combos from those power cards we talked about. It is also inherently a game that is balanced around the table, balancing it a little bit. Uh, if someone gets out in the lead, it really explicitly wants you all to come together and work to kind of put, fight that person down, which I think in a lot of games wouldn't work well. But 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 it's designed around this. There's this great sense of driving towards the end, this momentum where every turn uh, players are pushing towards the end of the game because either you're going to fight people and you're going to get progress towards adding a cube through combat rewards, basically, or through just getting there. So if the game didn't have that, it would be brutal. But for me, because it's always pushing towards the end, it builds these really climactic ends. So I quite like Quantum. Jake's scratching his head, literally. Yeah, I what I was going to say, I it's in, I did not know that anecdote about Zimmerman 
repopularizing the term magic circle, but it makes perfect sense because I have never seen a game implemented on board game arena that literally gives you a giant like warning message on the top of the page that's explicitly telling you what type of magic circle should exist in this game. It literally says this game is balanced around attacking the person who's in first place. Like you must do that. And only the first person wins, first place person wins, everybody else gets last place equally, which is great. Like I I, I was talking to Pete a little bit about this on Thursday with some other friends, but you know, we've been talking about player interaction a lot on this podcast. And I think a lot of bad feelings that occur around player interaction or lack thereof mm. really come down to people not you know, making stated agreements about what type of play is expected in the game at the start of play. So I just I just love that this game is making that it's not a rule of the game, right? It's not a rule that you have to do this. You can choose to do whatever you want. It's literally agreement that, you know, in order for this game to be the most fun, this is the type of magic circle we should create with our play. So I love that. I think it's great. So I've played this one on the table quite a few times. My main gaming partner actually tracked down a copy of this game. I don't know how much he paid for it because it's very hard to get. And I think it's super clever and I'm very bad at it. And normally I really like sort of like fighty, table talky games. But I've yet to have the play of Quantum where it like totally clicks. I think that there's something to the fact that, like you said, it's a high randomness game. And basically, you can just have a string of bad luck on your dice rolls and just be kind of like toast. And that's fine if it's like a 30 minute game. But because this is like a crabs in a bucket kind of game where you're just always fighting the leader, fighting the leader, it can really go for a lot longer than I feel like it should. And so I'm just waiting for that play of it where like it all magically coalesces in a way that I'm like, yeah, that was great. And it just hasn't happened for me yet. I've been playing this a bunch with Brendan and all online and all asynchronously. But the impression that I've gotten from our plays is that this is like a quick, quick game. What you're saying makes total sense. And maybe it's just that we all suck at it still uh, and are just letting people get away with murder uh, and and just win right away. But I feel like I have like five or six turns and then somebody's won in our plays so far. Well, I should say that my friend Jared, who owns the game, is very good at it. And so he's just so good at like reading the board state. And he's the kind of person that like maths out his turns in a way that I don't. And so I also just lose every time. Yeah. (laughs) And so... Uh, I'm not really someone that cares that much about that, but I, I've yet to like have a table full of people that all know how to gang up on the right person at the right mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So. Yeah. The cool thing that's, I think that's a really interesting anecdote, Pete, because I think a lot of people look at content and say like, oh, this isn't for me. It is too random. There's too much dice rolling. Like, oh my gosh, there's dice rolling and how I can move my stuff and to, to have it come out to the board. And then there's dice rolling and how those things do combat. And then if I want to re-roll something to reconfigure it, then I have to roll more dice. I don't even get the guarantee of knowing what my thing will become once I make the decision. Um, but you actually roll so much dice in the game that I think some of the randomness kind of evens out, right? Like it's counterintuitive, but it, to us as human beings, it doesn't make sense. But the more dice you roll, the more expected your values over the course of an observation become. And if your observation is a game, it's not super likely that anyone gets all that more lucky than anyone else. But obviously, pivotal moments happen. And if you get lucky then, 
it feels really good and really lucky. I don't know. I like this one. Jake, would you ever want to cover it on the show? Yeah, I, I think it'd be a good one to cover on the show. And I'll, I'll let you guys in on a secret, but yeah. I don't want you to tell anybody else. I really like this game. Yeah, sweet. Maybe Pete can come cover it with us. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'll, 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 you know, have my friend Jared teach me why he's so good at it and I'm yeah. so bad at it. Yeah, and then you can come school us. All right, awesome, Brendan. Thank you for bringing those games to us. Let's get to Pete's games. Pete, welcome to Decision Space. You're a board gamer. What an opportunity to come on our show. Yeah. What games have you chosen to share with our audience? Well, I, I have to say that I know you all are typically not, you know, the the cult of the new podcast, but I do have the new hotness first here, which is on Board Game Arena, <laughs> uh, and it's a game called, and I maybe it's not super hot, but I just like have seen people talk about it a lot. It's called Far Away. So Far Away came out last year, but is about to be published in the U.S. this year by Pandasaurus who, you know, of course, Brendan knows makes really good small box games, right? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And uh, I have a thing for small box card games. I really like micro filler games that are thinkier than you would think with the small amount the game does. I've played this game on Board Game Arena, I'm not ashamed to say, 50 times this month. Ooh, that's a lot of plays of far away. (laughs) This is a game that you can play in like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, so the designers here are Corentin Labrat, who did Draftosaurus, and Johannes Goopy, who did Oracalcum. I've never played either of those. Um, But this is essentially a tableau builder where the hook of the game is all you're going to do is you're going to play eight cards from left to right into a tableau. Then you're going to flip them all over and then score them from right to left. And that's the game, right? So it's almost like a reverse engine builder, right? Because um, when you score a card, it scores based on what you can see, right? And so your first card you played is going to be the last card you score and vice versa. And so it's 68 cards and those cards are numbered one to 68. And essentially it's, it's a game where there's a heavy push your luck element because when you start playing cards into your tableau, you're like, well, this will be great if I can find these other types of cards to make it score a lot of points. Sure. And so you have a hand of three cards and there's a card card market that ranges by player count. I've mostly played it at two. And when everyone plays their card from their hand, from lowest number to highest number, you draft a new card into your hand. So there is an element. Ooh, I like that. Okay, so you're already in, right? So yeah, I'm, and I'm all in on this. So this sounds great. If you play a, a low card, you're going to do that because you really want one of those cards that's up in the market. The other thing is that if the next card you play is higher than the card before it, you then get a bonus card, which is called a sanctuary. And those stay face up the whole time when you're scoring. And so you're getting these bonus cards if you go from low to high. And so like ideally, you would start with the lowest number possible and end with the highest number possible and just get a ton of sanctuaries. But that's actually really hard to do because you're not seeing very many cards. And sometimes you kind of need to hit the reset button. But um, what I really like about it is that it is really fast and the rules are dead simple. And it gives you this kind of like gambling rush because the score variance is so wide based on like how well you constructed and planned. Um, And it definitely rewards repeat plays. Like sometimes I'll play this and my score will be in the 40s. And sometimes I'll play this and my score will be in the high 90s. 
And so, you know, it just feels so good when like, you're like, okay, I'm playing this last card. I really hope that I draw a sanctuary that is going to give me the last symbol I need. And there's a little bit more to it with like the different symbols on the cards and things like that. But it's the, it's a great little like micro tableau builder game that you just kind of want to play it, play it back as soon as you play it. Um, Cause it does have this sort of addictive nature. I really like these quick tableau building games, kind of like race for the galaxy is a favorite of mine. And I think forest shuffle is pretty cool. I really like the like hyper quick tableau builder. And this is spot on in that department. How, how, I know you said this, but how um, are cards like entering your hand? So that's when you play a card down, you okay. then draft a card from like a card market row. Okay, so that's the only card. So you everybody's have, you have three cards in your all hand. the cards. Yeah, yeah, to start. And like, and then any future cards are just from the market. Correct. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where if you want, you can pay attention to other people's tableaus and hate draft because your your tableaus are face up before you score, right? So like I can see like, oh, Jake's going for like blue cards or Brendan's going for like pineapples, which is like one of the symbols. And so I could be like, well, that card would be exactly what they need. I don't, I already know in my hand what I'm playing next. So like, I'll just grab that just to mess with them. But it seems like you have such a small number of cards that it, you'd be tough to pass up something that you potentially are going to want. Also. There's a surprising amount of depth of decision in just playing eight cards is the the hook of the game i think the thing that sounds most intriguing to me is just that kind of competing tension of you know while you're just playing a card you know thinking about how badly you want the cards on display trying to sequence your cards from low to high and of course just playing cards that synergize with whatever you're hoping to do it feels like you're going to be pulled in different directions more often than not, which which you'd want for a game that has like one decision on your turn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oftentimes you'll play in like half of your tableau scores zero points because wow. you just like didn't get what you were looking for. Yeah, And then Pete, you said this game takes around 15, 20 minutes. It's yeah, really I bet snappy. that if you played it, yeah, I think if you played it in person, it could take up to 30, I bet. Sure. But most of the decisions are made simultaneously as well. So it's really quick. Awesome. Well, I want to play Sounds cool. I'm yeah, you yeah, let's do it. Highly recommend let's play it. online. Yeah. All right, Pete, what's up next? I got a trick taker here. Oh, yeah. so you, you threatened it at the top. I, it was teased, <laughs> Always right? The it guy was teased. with a box of cards. It's true. So I should say, like, I think I have a collection of over 60 of these trick taking or climbing and shedding games. And uh, and I'm now getting to a point to where like I'm like, I don't need to buy all of them. Right. Like it's, it's just now getting to that point for me. But this game came from a Kickstarter that I knew I had to back. And so this game is called Charms. Um, it's published by New Mill Industries, which is like a really small indie publisher. Um, Daniel Newman is one of the owners, and he's also a designer. And um, so this one was a Kickstarter with another game. Both of these are from Japan. Uh, Japan is where a lot of the energy and the trick-taking renaissance is coming from. And I knew I had to back this because these two games are from like the master of the Japanese trick-taking game, uh, a designer named Taiki Shinzawa, who is now one of my favorite designers. I think I own more Taiki Shinzawa games than any other designer. My favorites of his, he did a game called Mask Men with Oink that I think is brilliant. Um, Twinkle Starship is another really good one. He all play published Ghost of Christmas and Nine Lives from him. And so... His games are always these like amazingly brilliant, wacky concepts for a game that are sometimes more interesting than they are fun to play. 
And so this is one that I knew had an interesting hook. And it turns out that this one is actually an absolute blast to play. It's immediately entered like into one of my favorites. So the hook of this game, it was originally called Dois in Japan, D-O-I-S. It came out in 2014. And so the hook is that your cards in your hand are either suits or numbers. And so mm. you have suitless cards and you have numberless cards. Okay. So some games have done this. Like All Play just came out with one called Lunar that does this. Um, oh, yeah. I played yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So what's cool about this game is, so it's a must-follow trick-taking game. And so the first trick of the game, the lead player will play one suit and one rank. And everyone else has to follow suit by playing a, a suit and a rank. So everyone plays two cards. For every trick after that, you only play one card and you either are changing the suit in front of you or the rank in front of you. So you essentially have these two stacks of cards that you're That's so by the cool. time you play your whole hand, you've played everything. And the crazy thing is, is that you still must follow suit. So let's say I lead with uh, the key suit and everyone follows key suit. And then the next thing I do is I play the clover suit on top of the key. Now, everyone else has to play a clover card if they have it, but our ranks are not going to change, right? However, cool. if I don't have clover, I can play anything. I can play a different rank or a suit. And there's a trump suit. And the wackiest part about all of this is that you have to look at your hand and you have to bid, which it's insane because... You're, how the what heck are you, you even bidding <laughs> on? I don't understand. So how does scoring work? Like yeah. at the, the end of it, like somebody just wins the game. So they've first like of all, I will say that as someone who grew up with spades, bidding is like one of my favorite things of, to do in trick taking games. And this is a game that's what's really neat about it is there's no such thing as a good hand or a bad hand. It actually doesn't matter how many tricks you win. What matters is how close you were to getting your bid. And so the scoring in this game is very simple. Uh, points are bad. And so if you hit your bid, you get zero points. If you're one off in either direction, you get one point. If you're two off in either direction, you get three points. And if you're more than two off, you get five points. Okay. So, But how does uh, how do you win a trick? The same way you, you wouldn't any other going game. around and around. So the same way you So would, you don't take the cards. You don't you take just, the like, cards. A... Actually, so Daniel at New Mill used the same components that were in the low budget indie Japanese version, which is you have these large black buttons and they're literally like buttons from a shirt that you grab to say, I'm going to win this many tricks. And then the tricks are represented by little white buttons that like fit in the black button. And so cool. when you take a trick, you take one of the little buttons and put it and make a little button hug. That's awesome. But then it, yeah. So at the end, you'll see if people hit their bid because if they didn't fill all their big buttons, they missed it. Or if they have yeah. little white buttons that don't have another button to hug, they missed it. So this game I played with three people and we were just, it starts off kind of like, okay, okay. But then like halfway through the hand, it just goes off the rails because like people are like, I have nothing but suits in my hand or I have nothing but ranks in my hand. And so it becomes totally wacky to watch how the tricks play out. And when you, it's one of those games where if you hit your bid, it feels like you pulled off like some kind of magic trick. And I love that feeling. And like there is by we played three hands and by the third hand, it was like, oh, I see. Like if I have the lead, I can easily manipulate the trick to make sure that I win the next one. Right. Because like, let's say I played a nine, which is the highest card. If all I do is change the suit, I'm going to win the next trick, too, because I've played the highest card. Right. right. And so because the, the ranks are going to stay the same. So there's a lot to it. I just think it's absolutely bonkers. And it actually ends up taking the strong premise and be turning it into a really fun game, which doesn't always happen. 
Okay, so if you can win more, if there's more than one trick per round, then shouldn't it be called a tricks-taking game? Wow, just wow. Is that gonna, do you cut out things like that, Jake? <laughs> no, that's going in. <laughs> Jake's trying to rename a, a genre right now. <laughs> I will say the other game that came in this Kickstarter I have not played yet, but it's got another one of these wacky premises. It's a game called Inflation. And in that game, you play your whole handout, but the numbers are on the right side of the card. And the next time you play a card, it becomes the next integer in a larger number. And so by the end of the hand, you've played a number that is absolutely massive because you've just got like a line of numbers. Like playing a 60 or something. Yeah. Right. So you like, I played a zero and then I play a six. So that number is 60. And then the next thing I play is a one. So I, my next number is 160. Wow. Um, and that's another one where you have to bid, which is like, so that's next on the agenda. Same designer. Cool. Um, but this one is now available. You know, a lot of these weird Japanese games have been hard to get forever, but because this genre has taken off, they're becoming more available in the US, which is great. So would you say, Pete, you think uh, Charms by Taiki Shinzawa is a connoisseur of trick-taking games game, or is it a game for anyone interested in trick-taking games? So, yeah, I would say that this one is probably made for the connoisseurs. I actually think that any game that heavily requires bidding automatically makes it not beginner friendly. Yeah, And I think you're not really going to be able to appreciate what the twist of the game is doing if you're not familiar with the genre. Like, you know, you take a game like Cat in the Box, which has this really awesome twist of there's no suits on the cards. You know, you get to say what the suit is. And like, that's really fun. But I think you appreciate that even more if you sort of understand what it's riffing on. And so yeah. I would say that this is a good like next step trick taker. I don't think it's like expert tier and I don't think it's beginner level. I would say it's like a next step trick taking game. Yeah, sounds really interesting. And yeah, bidding and also a game that doesn't have good or bad hands sounds like really cha- <laughs> challenging for sure. I, I mean, I think these trick taking games at their best, right, are like clever riffs on it and this one in particular is just makes me think like how has nobody thought of this before yeah. right like it's just been right in front of us the whole time where it's like oh you just change your hand one by one or your your played card one by one i think that's so cool okay should we jump down to your next game p yes my last game game number three here is imperium uh the deck building game which most recently imperium i played legends, imperium right? legends but i I have them all in one box. So I have Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. And so this is a deck building game by David Tertzi and Nigel Buckle. And I got this one when it came out and loved it and got it back out recently because there is a new box that is coming out called Imperium Horizons, which is a sort of a standalone sequel but it's totally compatible with the original games. Uh, and it comes in a, a big enough box that you, if you throw the insert away, which the insert's terrible anyway, you can fit everything in that box. Nice. Which Before you tell us about this game, like what do you guys think the next one's going to be called? Uh, so we had Legends, Classics, and Horizons. So... Uh, I'll go Underworld. Mm, maybe uh, Imperium... Like maybe a Dune one, right? Like a, a yeah, Dune right. Imperium. 
War of Imperium, War of Arrakis. I have to say, like, is there anything more obnoxious than the overuse of Imperium in board game oh titles? Like, I never it, know what to call this game. Like, if I call this game, oh, I'm playing Imperium, people are going to be like, but like Twilight Imperium or, or Dune Imperium or Imperium the Contention? It's like, this is a, ga- a word that is so uncommon in the world, yeah. but it's pretty yeah. prominent in board games. It, it would yeah. be like in the but, video game world, there are multiple games called Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the problem with it is like a lot of these games are really damn good, so we can't just ignore them. Like, yeah. uh, like Tyler in my Monday Night Game Group, like Imperium, the Contention, and Dune Imperium are like both in his top five favorite games of all time. Yeah, it's so, not allowed, right? It's a nightmare for yeah. sure. So here's a, th- a thing about this game is so good that I am not generally a solo gamer, but I've played this game at least sixteen times solo. And so deck building is one of my favorite mechanisms. And this is the probably the heaviest pure deck building game that I've seen. When I say pure deck building, I mean like there isn't a board. It's literally just a deck building game. And you score your deck at the end as if you were playing like Dominion. And it is a very polarizing game. And I actually think that all the criticisms of it are totally fair. People say that the rule book is bad. Oh. That the con- Boo, I thought you were going to say <laughs> nope. they're wrong. Nope. Come on. They say we're the rule book's bad, and it is. They say the components seem cheap, and they do. And they say it's long and fiddly and not interactive. And those are all 100% true. And it's one of my favorite games I've ever played. Um, because I think that the mechanics of the game are so good that I think it's actually worth the work to get into the game. So for anyone who's not familiar, this is a, a civilization building game. It's historically themed. And every player, I say every player, let me go on and get this out of the way. It says it plays from one to four. No sane person would play this at four players. Um, this is really a one or two player game. The the There's like basically no player interaction and adding more players is just adding downtime. I have never played this with more than two people and I have no interest in doing it. And the only thing about playing with two people versus playing with one is that you essentially have someone else to help you set it up and tear it down. And I don't have to run a bot. So it's like slightly better to play it with another person because less feelings of like self doubt because you're like playing a board game by yourself at home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not someone who's, who's against solo gaming. I just have never found one that the barrier of getting out, setting up, and playing a two-hour game has ever really been worth it to me for a solo game. Yeah. I'm not against it by any means. Like I love that that's an option for people who don't have people to play with or just love doing it. That's great. But every time I do it, even I really like Arkham Horror Living Card Game, and I've played whole campaigns of that solo. But even still, every time I'm doing it, I just have like a creeping... I can't help myself at the back of my head a little bit. A voice in my head like, this is kind of lonely, don't you think? It doesn't bother me at all, honestly. Nice. That rocks. And so the reason this is one of my favorite games is, first of all, it is very, very thematic. Um, I'm a history teacher, and I actually have a master's degree in medieval history. And that's sort of... This, this is like an ancient and medieval civilization building game. Every deck is a different civilization and the decks are asymmetric. And the core hook of the game is that each player gets like a 10 card starting deck. And then you have your nation deck that you shuffle and put on top of your like turning point in history card. I forget what it's called. And so every time you have to reshuffle your discard pile, you add a card from your nation deck. And so that represents the passage of time, right? So every time you shuffle your deck, you're progressing as a civilization. 
And then once you add the last card from your nation deck, you then become an empire and you get to start buying cards from your own personal like development market. And there's also a row of common cards that you interact with as well that anyone can buy from. But the the historical hooks are amazing. Like every civilization feels unique to play. Also, the bot you play against feels unique to play against as well. There's bots, different bots for every civilization. And so, yeah, so I've played this game, like I said, 16 times solo. The reason I got it back out was that there were two civs I had not played yet. And I was like, well, if I'm buying this new box, I need to play all the civilizations before I jump into the new box, which has 14 new ones. So I have 16 civs and now they're adding 14 more. And so there's a lot of variability and replayability because when you play a civilization for the first time, you're just figuring out like, what are, what is this civilization's deal, right? And so you're not going to play optimally the first time you use a civilization. And so it makes you want to play that civ again, even though I'm like, but I have all these other civilizations I haven't even seen yet. So as someone who likes to chase novelty in games, this game is constantly presenting that. And the other thing I love about the mechanisms as someone who really likes deck building is this one gives you a high level of control in a couple of different ways. First of all, you know, we think about deck building, we think like Dominion had this static card market where like there's 10 different cards you can buy and that's not going to change. And so everyone's playing with the same sort of inputs. You can, you're, you can, you could all build the same deck if you wanted to. Right. Um, and then Ascension came out and they created this more dynamic card market, which I think a lot of people thought was more interesting, but at the same time created more of that like luck factor that, Oh, the cards I want to buy might not come through the market. What this one does is the common card market that you can all buy from is separate decks with particular types of cards. So there's like a deck of regions, a deck of like civilizations you can conquer, a deck of whatever. And so there's variability, but like you know that those types of cards are gonna be in the market. So that gives you more control. The other awesome thing is that when you buy a card from the market in this game, it does not go in your discard pile, it goes into your hand. Which if you play a lot of deck builders, that just feels really good because like you buy a card, then you can play it immediately, which is really great. And another thing I love is that culling cards is a great part of every deck builder. We all love thinning out our deck in a deck builder. And this one, it's especially important because the more you thin out your deck, the faster you're going through history, right? Um, But the way you cull cards in this game is by putting them in your history. And so like under your civilization card, you tuck your history and you score those cards at the end of the game, but they're no longer in circulation because that represents the past of your civilization. So that's really cool. And there's like four different ways the game can end. And so it's just really heavy and complicated. And it gives me enough of a puzzle that, yes, the game is long, but I feel like I'm making interesting decisions the whole time. And um, so, yeah, I'm just excited for the new box to come out. The last two civilizations I needed to play were actually some of the ones that are not historically based. The Legends box has some like non-historical ones. So I had to play as the Atlanteans, which their cool mechanic is that they don't have a history. Instead, you like things sink, like the lands, your lands are constantly sinking, but they have no history. And then the other one is the Utopians, which is themed around like Tibetan monks trying to find Shangri-La. And that one is like, you're not building a sieve. You're like literally progressing on a path towards Shangri-La and trying to like convert people to like enlightenment so it's great wow that's that sounds like 
some serious variability just right there. Okay, Pete, I have one question because you've kind of sold me, but Borgengi tells me this is like a 40 to 160 minute game. Great. How, yes. how long is it typically when you play? So I would call this a, are you playing solo or with other players? Solo. I would call it set up to tear down like two hours. Okay. That makes sense. You told me not to play it with others, so I'm playing it solo. Okay, so that's what? <laughs> yeah. That's 120 minutes. And it takes the same amount of time to play with two players. Actually, slightly more probably. But um, I will say one of the things that's coming out in the new Horizons box is that it's got variants to shorten the game. So people complained that the game was too long. So there's a variant to shorten it. And then it also comes with a new optional module that is a trading module, which adds player interaction to the game that wasn't there before because you can have like trade route cards in your tableau because it's also a tableau builder. And other people can like pay, give you a good to use like your trade route. And like, but then if a lot of goods are on your trade route, you can then get to do a powerful action. And so I haven't played with that, but that's one of the new mechanics. That sounds awesome. So that's Imperium Legends. Awesome. So we're basically at an hour right now. I still had three games to talk about. So what I want to propose to y'all is I could just like rapid fire. I just want to say like one thing about two games and then we can talk about Age of Innovation to wrap up. Does that sound? That sounds great. Sound good? I'm sorry we pinched you, Jay. Yeah, well, don't apologize to me. (laughs) Apologize to all my fans who are just at the edge of their seat, particularly waiting to hear what I have to say. So I'm sorry, Jay. Can apologize. If, Thank you. If, if you were trying to hit a, a, a target time, you invited the wrong guest onto the show. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's been a re- it's been really good. Okay, so I finally game number one, rapid fire. I finally played Hamburg. That's the re-implementation of Bruges by Stefan Feld, put out recently by Queen Games. Bruges is one of my all-time favorite games, so I was really excited about. Hamburg. Unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that I think it's it was for me a slight downgrade from Bruges uh, for two reasons. Uh, reason number one, it takes what is a giant deck of cards shuffled up and split into half with different colors, card backs, you know, sorted throughout. It's sorted those out so each time you draw a card on your turn, you can draw specifically from each deck and i think that's a big problem because it creates more incentive to know every single card in this game is unique and there's a wide range of how good or bad a card might be especially for like the board state and what you're trying to do so it creates like a much greater incentive to have a sense of like what cards could be in each color so i didn't like that i I mean i didn't try and memorize the cards nobody i've played with tried to memorize the card but i still didn't like that that it would create such an advantage to somebody mm. who did have a better sense of what the card pool was because they've played the game more times uh, and the other reason i didn't like it is this game at its core is about risk mitigation so if you've played bruise you know that you roll dice at the start of each turn and any that uh, in five different colors it's now six different colors mm. in hamburg uh and any that roll a five or six give you a threat token. Once you've gotten three threats of the same color, you suffer a bad effect. And here, whenever a, I think it's like the black dice is rolled, then that gives you a threat. And that the effect of that is you have to draw a disc. 
and the disc will give you a penalty on it, but mm. it's random, so you don't know what it is. And some of them are good things. Mm. So everybody gets punished except for some people just randomly get a benefit or something nice, which on it in and of itself is kind of a weird decision, I think, for a game that already has a lot of randomness and swinginess. But on top of that, the thing that really gets me is you could also get another threat token of a different color making the risk mitigation puzzle almost impossible because it's really in the previous game you know if you're at one threat you're not going to bust because you could get at most one but now it's possible that you could gain two threats in the same color on any given turn and that changes the puzzle in a really unsatisfying way for me so two kind of small development changes but that really kind of had a big impact in our play so I just wanted to share my thoughts on that since it's one I've been excited about. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to say something? Well, the only thing I want to say is just it's surprising because I know your affection for Bruges and hearing how much you, knowing how much you love Bruges and sort of how you're talking about Hamburg. And I think also how long you've wanted to own Bruges. It's sort of a bummer to hear that Hamburg just like is a miss and not, not a hit for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird to have development decisions made that I think just kind of like play against the strengths totally. of the game, which brings me to my island, <laughs> the follow up to my city. Um, and I, so I, I'm about halfway done with my island. So maybe when I finish it, I'll give further thoughts on this podcast. But the thing that just jumps out at me right away about this game. And, and I guess, let me just say, first of all, I'm having a great time playing with it. So I think it's like a very fun box and it's a good experience overall, though I don't like it as much as my city for two reasons. The first is that in my city, you get polyomino tiles to place on your board, which are like, which is just a fun thing to do, right? You're playing with Tetris pieces and here you don't have polyomino tiles. You only have like grouping of hex shapes. So you have like a one, uh, a two hex, a three hex in a line, a three hex triangle, and then like four hexes in a line in a four hex diamond. And those shapes are just less interesting. So that inherently to me makes like the puzzle placement aspect of the game just less enjoyable because of the materials you're working with. So that is what it is. The other thing that just, I cannot believe that this decision was made is that my island removes the card that exists in my city that tells you to discard the next card. So in my city, the random input in the game is you draw a card, it shows you a polyomino tile, you place that tile somewhere on your player board. Everybody places that tile on their player board. My island works the exact same way, um, but in my city, there's a card that whenever you flip it, it says discard the next card. And my island doesn't have that, so... This has a huge, well, it doesn't have really that big of an effect on the game. It has a tremendous effect on the decision space because what the game is telling you in my city is don't take it too seriously about trying to figure out where everything's going to go because you might not be able to do that anyway because one of the pieces is going to be missing. Whereas my island, maybe this card will show up later, but through half the game, it telling you like you could literally plan out every single thing that you're going to place from the start and that you know it really leans into like making people feel like they should math out 
Uh, and I think it does like increase increase AP and just like feel bad moments if you like mess something up because like you could have just not messed it up. So I just can't believe that. Uh, and it it's a development choice that I don't agree with. Do you think you'll also. finish the campaign, Jake? I think so. I'd really like to. Yeah. I mean, my city, I, I never finished my physical box campaign either. So I was really aided by being on Board Game Arena. With, so I finished the campaign there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so, so I've been playing with my wife. We're, we're honestly having a great time with it. So I'm being critical. But I just felt like, wow, I can't believe this has been changed. Because for me, it's it's a big detriment to the game that I enjoyed so much in my city. So if, and I haven't heard anybody if, talk if, about if it. If I could jump in as someone who has played this and never played my city. Okay. Yeah. I did not like this game. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I had a group uh, that was playing it. And I think we, I must've played it at least nine times, maybe more. And it's first of all, just not my kind of game. Like I'm not a spatial puzzle tile laying, like doesn't excite me. And um, you know, I, the game is built so that you play, you sit down and play it like three times in a row, ideally. Right. And when we finished the game and there was like, all right, Let's do it again. I was just like, oh my God, because I didn't feel like it was changing that much. Like I felt like it was not really giving me like something to be excited to be like, oh, cool. Now we're doing it like this. It just was not, it just felt very repetitive. And like the ultimate, it might be like, oh, well now you want to put the greens together. And I'm like, cool whoa dude great no spoilers please chill out i just like (laughs) just kidding and the thing is i played with a group of people who played through my city together and adored my city and the first couple things they were like oh this is so crazy right like this is this is different from my city and then by the time we got to a probably where you are jake even they were like i guess we gotta keep playing my island (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you know, what I'm gathering from other people who have played both games is that this one is less loved. People like it less. I, I wonder how much of that is just the fact that we have my city. You know, like if this came out first, and I think it would probably have done well. And then if my city came out, people would be like, this is pretty similar to my island. So I wonder if I think that it isn't better. And I think that partially a lot of the criticism it gets is just that. It's second. And it, like I so, said, it's also, anyway. it's just not my kind of game. So yeah. telling me that we're playing a tile lane game and it's a legacy game is just even worse for me. I'd love to, I'd love to play the uh, eternal game of my city. That's like the one that's meant as like a family game, not a legacy game. It's like the back of the board. I'd like to see what you would think of that one, Pete, which, which is sort of in my mind, sort of the best, of ideas of the, it's like the whole campaign. my city had just been published as a singular game okay, yeah. see if you like That's it wonderful but right. yeah it, we love it uh okay so let's talk lastly about age of innovation a terra mystica game designed by helgi 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 ostertag <laughs> <laughs> apologize apologize to helgi Maybe yeah yeah i don't know so Age of Innovation is very much a Terra Mystica game. I think if you've played Terra Mystica, you'll have a really good sense of what this game is all about, though there are some changes from that. 
Uh, I came to this game after playing Terra Mystica as like my third modern board game after, you know, kind of getting into the hobby and just it was just way too much for me at the time like just too heavy too confusing didn't understand the different faction powers uh so i ended up trading it away and never really revisiting it but i was intrigued when i heard this game came out and wanted to give it a shot and pete was nice enough to bring it over uh my house on my birthday and played it with uh pete and two other good friends and we had a total blast playing it so as i understand it and pete you can jump in to correct me the main change from terra mystica is uh there's an addition of i think the setup is a little bit different possibly factions exist the same way but i think there's like an extra something with the board perhaps so it's not just special powers but then the main difference is that there's the addition of a new resource books and an innovation track replaces the old cult track, which is a little bit more interactive. And then there's a whole board of upgrades, the the innovations that you're able to buy and add to your board, which you use the book resource to buy. Anything else, Pete, I should well, I mean, mention that's like big difference from Terra Mystica? The is that um, you essentially create a faction when you play. So the other big thing that fans of Terra Mystica are excited yeah. about is that you essentially have a dual layer player board for a terrain and there's you slot in a faction power, you slot in a stronghold power. You So essentially all the things that make up a faction in Terra Mystica, you sort of like custom build before you start the game, which just adds way more variability, which is good because Terra Mystica is one of those games that people played to death to the point to where the play at high levels becomes kind of prescriptive based on what faction you get. Like there's like scripted openings and things like that. And this just kind of throws in too many variables to have that kind of meta. Right. Yeah. And when we played it, we sort of just like grouped some stuff together. So we didn't do like a full on draft or auction or whatever you would do for all the different resources. But yeah, I was the goblins and my goblins were paired with a faction power that worked really well with it. So that was great. I love that. And I always want to play as the goblins now. It also uh, should be noted that Jake won this game with the goblins, which is maybe why he wants to play as them. And also I've been smoking everybody at quantum slightly. So maybe that just tells you a lot about the type of games I prefer being the ones that I've recently had victories in. But I think the reason I was excited to talk about this on this episode is because the play was really fun. And I think thinking about interaction uh, a lot lately, I really like the way interaction was handled in this game in that I always felt as though I was bumping up against other players. On your turn, you're taking an action of which there's a limited supply of things right there's like limited uh special actions that you can take so you really want to be one of the first people uh to use those and you're just kind of like even if you're not directly fighting you're always just like hoping like please do not take the thing that gives me the extra workers or or whatever uh that i desperately need to pull off my whole move uh you're competing over territories of course as you're trying to terraform the board into the type of terrain that you can build on Uh, and then you're also wanting to position your buildings next to other people's spaces so that you can get some kind of positive interaction because when somebody builds next to your 
space, you get some extra power that you can use to do different things. So it felt like a great mix of, yeah, like as, as the person who generally shies away from especially like heavy long games that can feel really interactive. Like it still worked for me. Like I still felt like I was able to do my own puzzle, but then Pete's coming to the other end from the other end of the spectrum, really favoring heavy, highly interactive games. And so it felt kind of like the, a bridge, right? That we could both connect on. And I think, you know, for that reason, it really kind of excelled in that area. Did it leave you wanting more Jake? Like having played it once, are you dying to go back and play it again? I, I would like, I definitely would like to play it again. I think the, I, I mean, I was joking about how I always want to play the goblins. And part of the reason I liked that, I, I liked that is because way back in my magic, the gathering days, like I always liked red decks. I always liked playing goblin decks. So when I saw goblins. I was like, oh yeah, I want to grab that, which is cool, right? It's like a little bit of an expression of personality. Like I want to be the goblin guy, but also my actual board game playing brain was seeing like other cool things that other players power. So I think just in like exploring the different factions, the different pat I mean, so there's like the factions that give you something and then there's the other things you're adding your board to. I think that would be cool. But mainly I want to go back to it, not because there's more to explore, just because like the actual play itself was really satisfying and fun. And and I mean our game, like it it was just it was just a really good time. Like everybody was really close, uh, competitive, doing and, and kind of attacking the game in different ways too. So even beyond just the actual things that you have access to being different, I think the game can really felt like it could really support different strategies. Like Pete really built out his area the most. Somebody else was trying to max out the innovations. I think I was doing like more upgrading my own powers on my board and all of us finished within a few points of each other. Yeah, I think that the game presents more paths to victory than Terra Mystica, which is a game that I played a lot. And I think that in Terra Mystica, you could end up sort of pinned and blocked out by other players where you're like, well, I'm screwed. Like, and and you could end up like in a position where you've been totally cornered on like the third round and be like, well, I guess we've got to keep playing this three hour game that I know I'm going to lose. Whereas this game seems like it might just be the construction of the map, but I think it's built in such a way that like, you kind of feel like you always have a way to like weasel your way into different sort of avenues. If something becomes blocked that you were kind of banking on. Um, which I think makes it a, a slightly friendlier game, but it still maintains the sort of like elbowing for position area control thing that I really like about Terra Yeah, yeah. It, I think you'd said kind of in the play that felt a little bit more generous too with kind of like the resources that you're able to collect. It also has a great, it's a long game, but it has a good tempo to it because there's always like short-term goals that you're aiming for in each of the, I think, six rounds of the game, there's a different kind of objective. Like if you've achieved this in this round, you get some kind of bonus. Um, so you're sort of shooting for those as you play. Uh, so it's not just purely looking to, to the end of the game either. Uh, there's there's lots of moments of like little triumphs and little disasters that happen along the way that I think keeps it really engaging. So Are those variable? I, kind of bra- like brush? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but you see at the beginning of the game what every round's end of round yeah, thing is. Yeah, it reminds so. me a little bit of like Isle of Sky where you kind of have like different scoring things that come up. 
it's not like as it's not just like you can score you know multiply your score in that way but yeah like the type of planning ahead for future rounds felt very isle of sky ish the colors this is so not you know but the it's like the presentation of this game is very attractive uh it's a little more saturated than terramisca is and i think if someone presented put this game on the table and terramisca i bet nine out of ten people would say i want to play that game just because it looks it's very inviting and it's it's cool it looks nice I would say our friend Paul Solomon was kind of critical of the look, being like, this is the big upgraded look. But for me, you know, I, well, I, it, it's not just the look, but it's like just the gratuitous amount of like wooden blocks yeah. that just like transports me back to like my settlers of Catan days in college, where for whatever reason, there's part of me that sees this and was like, this is what a board game should be. And I don't even know where that comes from, but it's just, it, it has that really like, like, all right, boys, we're coming over. We're playing like a board game. Like, this is kind of what I have in, in my like mind's eye. Um, Brendan, have you played any of the Terra Mystica family of I've games? I've only ever played Terra Mystica and I would, I've played it online. And I would say that I, it didn't feel like I got the real Terra Mystica experience. I, I sort of interacted meaningfully with the action selection mechanism and the sort of buckets that you push your the cubes too but beyond that i felt like i was not making decisions optimally but i and it, I, it left me not super excited to try more whether it was terramisca or gaia project or uh but after following this conversation it, it's one i would love to play but i think they're games i'd want to play on the table with other people i think the longer a yeah. game is the more i want to experience it with friends and it makes it the social learning of games is more important with longer games, uh, which is just something you don't do when you're learning games online as much. Uh, so I think these games need that sort of social learning to really pop and make the decisions yeah. pop for you in your first play or two. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And it feels like this is just like a great onboarding point. I think for me, I felt like I missed the window for Terra Mystica. And it's like, what am I going to do? Play it online with junkies who have played it 600 times and know the canned openings like I, i'm not really interested in that so this kind of felt like create a little bit of like a permission structure to not only is this a better newly developed version of terra mystica you know you can kind of get in on the ground floor uh and try out so it was great you know and i it's not i i going into it, i was very unsure if this would be the type of game i would like and i ended up just really loving it so fun to be able to share it on this podcast so I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Pete, thank you so much for coming on. I know you have some games kind of in the works, nothing out yet. Is there anything you want to plug? No, I think that 2025 will be a year for me. But as of now, I'm not yeah. sure what I'm supposed to talk about and what I'm not. Yeah. So Right. Well, that's really exciting. <laughs> remember this, remember the name. <laughs> Pete Wissinger. Yeah. Yeah, I just Pete got into one T. I, I had I got into game design as a New Year's resolution for New Year's of 2022, and uh, so it's it's sort of a new thing for me. But I do have some things cooking That's awesome. that yeah. have been are are going to happen. So yeah, <laughs> I've played some of the Pete stuff, and when people get their the opportunity to play these games, you're you're in for a treat. So let's leave it there. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. Join us on the Discord. Uh, you can even tag Pete there and, and he'll talk to you about trick-taking games. Uh, and yeah, so thanks y'all for listening. And as always, we should thank Hembry for our intro and after song, Reach Out. And until next week, Bye, have a good one. Bye y'all.